I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you're following along in the bulletin, you can find the text printed there on page 8. And if you're following along in a pew Bible, uh, you can see it there on page pages 944, and it goes on to 945. So we'll be, we'll be looking at the end of Romans chapter 8 today, verses 31 to 39. Well, for those of you familiar with Paul's letter in Romans, we've really come to the mountaintop of this climactic presentation where Paul is talking about everything that he said so far, (laughs) and he's summarizing it all in this elevated, poetic, celebratory language. It's it's really the high point uh, in many ways of where we've been in Romans so far, which actually has a lot of high points in it as well. But um, while many of us may find Romans 8 to be beautiful and comforting description of our salvation, One of the things that I never noticed before, and maybe you all have already, and I'm just really late to the game, which is very possible, is that the entire context of Romans 8, and of this ending in particular, is a context of suffering. Um, When I think about suffering and where to go when I'm discouraged or in a dark place or when others around me are, um, other passages typically come to my mind, you know, maybe Psalm 42 and 43. Maybe you have others that come to your mind as well. But to be honest, Romans 8 hasn't um, been one of those salvation that has come to us. But he's also explaining how we haven't received the fullness of we are awaiting our adoption as sons, which doesn't mean that we're all male. It means we all have this privilege. What is our experience here on this side of glory? And it's one of groaning. It's one of hoping. It's one of waiting. And in this amazing rite, he understands the profundity of the difficulties of the waiting. And yet he also wants us to see what God is doing even while we're waiting, even in the groaning, even in the suffering. You see, when we find ourselves going through difficulties, when we find ourselves suffering, We often wonder why it's happening, don't we? That's one of the things that typically incessantly goes through our minds. And one of the experiences that I find in in talking to many people is in the midst of suffering, we find our minds being whisked up into this heavenly court. And we wonder what is going on. And, And maybe it's this legal problem. Maybe there's something that I have done that is causing things to go this way. Or maybe as we think of our present situation being put on trial, we find out that it's a love problem. Yes, God has forgiven me, but why doesn't he care enough to stop the pain? But see, as Paul brings us to this mountaintop of praise for all that God is doing for us in Christ, he wants us to see that the most amazing thing about the gospel is that both of those things are true. In God's salvation, every legal objection against us has been answered, and we are truly justified. And that salvation that we have, and that declaration, and that justification has come about because God's love is deeper and more powerful than we can ever imagine. And both the legal and the love questions find their solution 
really in the cross. And so this morning, really the summary of it is this. Paul wants us to face the sufferings of this life while we're groaning and waiting, fully secure in God's love. He wants us to understand how God's love helps us face the groanings and sufferings of this life. And so let me read our passage, Romans 8, 31 to 39, and then we will look at it together. Hear God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's, let's pray and ask his help as we consider these profound words together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us. We come in all different situations, some of us going through the most intense sufferings of our life, others of us in joy and bliss. But regardless of wherever we may be, when it's somewhere in between, we pray that you would meet us where we are. Will you help us to see and understand what Paul says about the love that you have for us that has been shown to us in Christ? And would that penetrate our hearts in such a way that it enables us to walk through the groanings and the suffering of this life securely in your love? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll look at our passage this morning in, uh, in two main points, and it's first, God is for you, and second, God loves you. Really, it's being secure in God's love means two things. It means God is for you, and it means God loves you. And so we'll be looking at those in turn as Paul unpacks that in our passage this morning. So first of all, let's consider what Paul says about this fact that God is for you as a believer. In verse 31, as Paul begins our passage, he says, What then shall we say to these things? Now, this question is really a conclusion of everything that has come so far. Uh, These things is really referring to the wonders of God's salvation that he's been unpacking for these eight chapters. But especially it relates to what we heard about last week, the security of having God's spirit, the security of God's promise and God's purpose in working all things for our good and conforming us into the image of Jesus. In in light of all that and all that undergirds it before, what shall we say to these things? And then Paul gives us this summary. It really boils down to this. If God is for us, 
who can be against us? What an amazing question. And Paul really just unpacks it with other questions and answers as he goes. This is really the bottom line summary of Romans chapters 1 through 8. In many ways, this is a bottom line summary of what it means to be a Christian. It means that through the work of Christ Jesus, God is for you. Now that's an amazing thing. And God is for us in not some simply sentimental way. When I think of the ways it's not, what comes to my mind are like parents on the shows of like The Voice or American Idol, and they're all for their kids, right? Oh, my kid's such a great singer. And then they open their mouth and you're like, whoa, uh, all the being for you in the world doesn't make you a good singer, right? And it's this nice, that's nice that you're, go team my child. Um, God being for us has none of that sentimentality, all the affection, but, but so much more. Because notice what he says, God is for us is in a way that means that no one can successfully stand against us. Do you see the power that's tied to that? And what that implies, and the rest of Scripture makes clear, is there will be people and there will be powers in this world seeking our destruction until glory. And we'll see examples of this as we go. But think about it. If God is for you, then who or what else in this world could ever successfully stand against you? That's it. We could stop there. But then Paul unpacks it in in such beautiful ways. In this life, you need to know that God is for you. And that means two things uh, we see in this section. First, it means God is forever giving you good. God is for you. And part of what that means is he is forever giving you good as his child. In verse 32, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. Um, If God the Father didn't spare his own son, whom he loves so much, but gave him up, how will he not also with him graciously, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is there anything, if God has given us his son, is there anything that God would then hold back? The language here reminds us of that story we find in Genesis 22 of Abraham with his son Isaac, his son of promise, the, the, the son on whom all of God's promises to him were made. And yet he was called to offer up Isaac in an act of faith. And what Paul is getting at here is on a scale far greater, God the Father was willing to give up his only son, his beloved son, his only begotten son. And unlike Abraham, his son wasn't spared by a sacrificial ram that was caught in the thicket. But instead, Christ willingly came as the sacrificial lamb for a bunch of sinners like you and me. And if that kind of love from God brought that kind of radical giving to the likes of us, then is God going to now give you any less? And Paul says, no. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, and that that statement 
reminds us of what God has given us in Christ, doesn't it? It tells us what God gave us in Christ. The plan of salvation wasn't, I'll give my son so that they're forgiven, and then we'll see what they can come up with as they go from there. We'll see how good they could be or maybe what they could scrape together. No, the plan from eternity was that through the giving of his son, we receive all things. All things that God has planned for us. That phrase there, all things, is a phrase that Paul uses elsewhere to describe the entirety of the universe. It's not just a few things. Heaven, earth, new creation of life and fellowship with God. Earlier, Paul has said that we are co-heirs in Christ and we are heirs of God himself, it says. He's given us himself as our inheritance. There's this phrase in the song that we'll sing later in the service, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And I love it because it's trying to capture this idea. It says, there is no more for heaven now to give. And what it's capturing is this. If we have the Son, we have all things because through the Son comes all things that God has forever planned for his beloved children to enjoy forever. There's no more for heaven now to give. It's all ours in Christ, even though we don't yet have it in its fullness. And that, that's explaining what God forever gives. He forever gives all things. But Paul also talks about how God forever gives. Did you notice that there? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see that? It's not along with Christ he'll call us to then earn all things. <laughs> no, it's, it's still grace. The grace of justifying you, the grace of sanctifying you is the grace of glorifying you. That's the grace of receiving forever the goodness and benevolence of living with God in eternity. From the moment God set his love upon you, his plan has always been that through his son, he would graciously, not because of anything that you have done, give you everything to forever be his child. That's what Paul is saying there. And so what does that mean then in our suffering? What does that mean then as we groan and we don't yet touch and see all things? Brothers and sisters, it means that your present circumstances are not a sign that somehow God has quit graciously giving you things. His disposition and action towards you is one of constant grace and gift, and nothing we do will change that. And so God is for you means that God is forever giving you good, but secondly, God is for you also means you are forever free from condemnation. You're forever free from condemnation. Have you ever noticed how condemning our thoughts can be when life is hard? You want to ask me when I think the darkest thoughts? <laughs> There's lots of those, but especially when life is hard, right? Have you felt that? We find ourselves saying things like, what's wrong with me? 
What did I do to deserve going through suffering like this? Why can't I just get it together and trust God in the midst of what I'm going through? Why do I still worry? Why do I despair? What kind of a Christian am I if I'm responding to hardships like this? And on and on, the questioning and the condemning can go. But Scripture pulls back a curtain in the midst of our suffering and it tells us that, you know what, there is this universe-wide condemnation effort that is taking place on the enemies of the people of God, from the enemies of the people of God. Forces of darkness beyond really even our understanding combine with the people and the powers of this world and they relentlessly seek to discourage, to shame, and to, to, to destroy the people that God loves. It's like this vicious tabloid machine that's just constantly cranking out accusation after accusation of what the people of God have said and done. That's the reality. And that's part of why we hear those inward voices, right? They are being projected at us from the outside and our consciences sometimes bring them up from within. But Paul wants us to say, okay, that's the situation, but what do those accusations actually accomplish? What does that tabloid machine actually produce? Sure, there's this whole host of accusations, but who hears those claims? And it's as though Paul says, I I want you to consider your legal team as you think about these claims. In verse 31, he says, God, is God going to let a charge stand against you? No way. Why? Because he's the one who justifies. Back to Romans 8.1, God's already rendered his verdict. He's already seen all the evidence. The tabloids coming across his desk tell him nothing new. And he has already said through the Lord Jesus Christ, no condemnation. So is God going to let a charge stand against you? No. Verse 34, is Christ Jesus going to condemn you? Let's stop and think about that. No way. Why? He died for you. He gave his life so that you could be forgiven of those very accusations. And it's not just that he died, but he was raised for your justification. And then what is he doing now? He's at the right hand of God. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 110, where he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, and he is now presently ruling and orchestrating all of history in such a way that it's putting all of his enemies under his feet until he comes one day in glory and putting all his enemy under his feet. What is that also doing? It's working for the good and the success of the kingdom of his brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the risen Lord Jesus is all about doing right now. And Paul says, and indeed he is interceding for us. That he presently is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Now, I've heard interceding explained in ways that I I think are problematic. Um, Sometimes we may picture this as these accusations come and the Father is somehow second-guessing his decision, right? Again, it's like his inbox is filling up with slanderous accusations and he's kind of scrolling through it. He's like, whoa, 
didn't realize it would be this bad. I mean, this was all your idea, Jesus. What are we going to do about this? And then intercession means Jesus being like, no, I love them. I died for them. Come on, we can keep going. That has so many Trinitarian problems with it, right? It's, it's such a problem. And yet, how often is that how we may feel about what's going on? That's not the idea at all. And so think of the Trinitarian context of this and what we heard about last week. Who also is interceding for us? The Holy Spirit himself, right? The Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to indwell the people for whom Christ died, to indwell God's people. And what is the Spirit doing in his intercessory work? He is praying for us the prayers that we would pray if we knew what God knows. The very things that we need, he is petitioning heaven for. And then notice the correspondence of that. Because we all know what it's like for petitions to be directed somewhere and not to be heard, right? And we may think of our petitions, even by the Spirit, making their way to heaven, but there's no one there who is concerned. Maybe it's a disinterested angel who's kind of strolling through the complaints uh, and, and isn't really invested in the whole ordeal, right? No, where are the intercessory prayers from the Spirit going? They are going to the Son who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who came and lived and died and was raised so that the Spirit could be sent, so the very things you need would go heavenward and be sent from heaven to you until he comes again to bring you to glory. The the Son interceding is his presence there in ruling and reigning and orchestrating all things, making sure that you have exactly what you need to remain faithful until he comes in glory. And so when we think of what the triune God is at work doing constantly, Father, Son, and Spirit, is there any chance that some charge is going to stick? Oh, I didn't really realize that they did that. Oh, let's rethink this. Paul says that's ridiculous. And he says not only consider who your legal team is, the triune God, but he says remember who you are. Do you notice what it says in verse 33? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one upon whom God has set his love and has saved in that unbreakable chain that we heard about last week. That he has foreknown and foreloved you, He has predestined you for glory. He has called you. He has justified you. And glory is most certainly yours. That's who you are if you are looking to Christ in faith. And so what does that mean? Brothers and sisters, your present circumstances and your present difficulties, whatever they may be, are in no way a sign that somehow a charge has gotten through or somehow that you are now condemned. Because through Jesus' work, you can say with what we saw in Isaiah 50, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? You are forever free from condemnation because of what the triune God has done for you in Christ. That's what it means to face suffering knowing that God is for you. He is ever giving you good 
and he is never condemning. And this is all because of our second point. God loves you. Not only is God for you, but God loves you. We've been talking about things kind of in legal terms a little bit, and and scriptures do that. It's a very helpful category for us to understand our salvation. But there's more that we need to know in addition to the legal aspects of our status before God. You know, I think sometimes we may picture salvation and Christ's work at the cross as this courtroom legal drama where God has somehow worked on our behalf and saved us, and then we say, wow, thank you, I can't believe I'm declared innocent. And he shakes our hand and says, well, that was nice, see you later. But that does no justice to what Scripture tells us. The whole reason for God taking up our case is because of his love. That's why he did all of the rest. And while we may find all kinds of condemnation and doubts in the midst of our suffering, you know what I think we're tempted to doubt most is the love of God, especially when life is hard. If God loved me enough to send his son for me, why am I going through all of this? He must not love me enough to keep me from this pain. Or his love isn't strong enough to do anything about it. These are things that at root we may wonder in the midst of suffering. And so Paul brings this whole section to a close by focusing on the truth that if you are in Christ, God loves you. And there's two things about his love you need to know. One is that God loves you with an inseparable love. God loves you with an inseparable or you can't be separated from it love. Being loved is a powerful thing, isn't it? I'm amazed as I watch like epic stories about people going through incredible sufferings or amazing feats that they accomplish. And it's amazing how just one other person caring about them can get them through so much, right? You may think of um, the crumpled up picture of a family member that's in a soldier's pocket when he's been far away from home and fighting enemies for years. And he pulls out that picture of the one person he knows is on his side and he can go on, right? You may think of a parent comforting their child in the night because of the noises they've heard or the darkness or the storm that's outside and don't worry, I'm here. That love puts their heart at rest and enables them to get through something that's very scary. Love is an amazing thing. But every human love that we experience in this life is a separable love. That's one of the most difficult things about being a parent, right? As we see our kids and their fears and their uncertainties and we want to say, don't worry, it's all okay because I'm here. But we know that can change. And that may not always be the case. And that factors out into every situation of, of love that we experience. And in fact, Paul gives us here a sevenfold list of things that separate us from those we love. And as he lists these things, this newsreel rolls through our minds of our greatest fears. Separation by tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, 
or sword. But Paul lists all those things to say this. These things may separate us from one another, from those we love, but they cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 38, for I am sure. And this isn't just Paul like, hey, I've thought about it for a day and I think I'll write a blog about it, like it's some new thoughts I have or something. Or this is just a hunch that I have. Paul is saying, I am convinced. I am thoroughly persuaded. I've considered it all. And he lists 10 things there, everything that encompass everything, seen and unseen. And he says, at the end of all of this, I know that this is what is true. I am sure nothing in creation, which means nothing outside of God, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, what God wants you to understand in the midst of your suffering and your groaning, as you face your present trials and as there are future uncertainties, is he wants you to know that nothing will be able to separate you from his inseparable love. You may struggle to feel it. You may not even be conscious of it as you near the end of your life on your deathbed, but nothing, not even for one second, will create any distance between you and God's inseparable love. Nothing can do that, Paul says. You know, and what's amazing is the thing that we cling to isn't a crumpled up picture that we keep in our pocket, but God has given us the bread and the cup that we cling to every week saying, Because of what Christ has done, nothing can separate me from God's love. And his love will get me through the things that I think might even destroy me. But that leads us to a question, right? That Paul really, I I think, answers for us. God loves you with an inseparable love, but what about these hard, what about these even horrible things that happen to us? If God loves us so much, then why are we going through those things? This is an objection that the people of God have faced all throughout history. We read his word, and it's something that we find all over the pages of it. And I just want to say this. There's a sense in which we will never fully know this answer, this side of glory to really be able to say to someone, the thing that you went through that was so horrible, I can tell you exactly why God did that. That's beyond us to do. There's a humility of the things that God knows and the depths of human suffering that should cause us to be very careful about speaking into those things. But Paul says, even in light of all of that, there is something that we need to know about God's love, even when we don't understand the details of how all that works out. And that's this. God loves you with a subversive love. God loves you with a subversive love. Now, I say that knowing that subversive may not be a word you use every day. If you do, I'd be interested to talk about it because I don't know how you work it in <laughs> into daily existence. Subversive may not be this word that we always use. It's not one that we find in Scripture. But, but I would say to you that it's essential for understanding how God's love works. It's it's a handle for us to lay hold of something much bigger. To subvert means this, to undermine or to overthrow. Literally, it means to turn from beneath. You hear sub there, beneath, and then to turn it. 
uh, and that's what's going on. It's taking something intended for one thing and turning it into its opposite. Now, when I was in high school, I wrestled uh, as a sport. I came from a long line of wrestlers, and um, they were pretty good at it, so I was hoping it was in the genes. Turns out it wasn't. Um, I thought that wrestling might impress girls, and um, when I met Darcy, she did not think that wearing spandex and rolling around on a mat was that impressive of a thing for guys to do, so struck out on that one. Um, But one of the cool things that wrestling did teach me was the skill of using your opponent's momentum against them. I know we have some friends here who um, practice jujitsu, and that's very much part of that practice as well. You take their attack, and you're able to manipulate it into their defeat. And I didn't realize how helpful this really was until later I was in college, and I had a roommate who was substantially bigger than me, and we were friends overall, but you know how that goes with guys like, establishing dominance in the dorm or something. We're like playfully slapping each other and all of a sudden it's turning pretty serious and things get more and more intense. And he got so frustrated because even being very much bigger than I, I was able to take his attack and tie him into positions that were very frustrating because he couldn't do anything about it. And it really worked out because he said, whoa, and then would tell other people, don't mess with him, he's tougher than you think. Where... Really, I kind of just got lucky. Um, but that's, that's an idea of subversion, right? Something comes at you and you're able to twist it toward another end. What was meant to destroy you turns into something victorious. Well, in a far greater and in an even more amazing and glorious way than anything wrestling could ever show, that is what God is doing in our lives as believers. Paul here cites Psalm 44:22. The context of Psalm 44 is really important because it's the people of Israel, and at this point, they're living righteously. They're doing the right things. They're trying to honor God. They're, they're not following idols. And yet, what happened to them? They were completely defeated in battle. They became the laughingstock of the nations around them in this particular context. And in Psalm 44, they are crying out to God, and they're saying this, Why are we suffering like this when we are living for you? And Paul lifts out that quote that's one of the most poignant parts of the psalm there. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how the people of God felt in that very moment. But Paul says, wait a minute. There is more going on. In all these things, he says, in the sufferings of this present age, and in all these separating and destroying things that he has listed, they're actually the site of victory. Paul says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors is a phrase that we struggle to find a word good enough to translate. Um, Some of the ways people translate it are this, we super conquer, we are victorious to the max, we win a sweeping victory. You can't even say it without it sounding kind of cheesy because it's so great. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. What he's saying is this, the things that the enemy thinks will destroy us, God somehow takes and subverts and overturns into something that's actually victorious. 
in the movie Black Panther, the main character there, T'Challa, he gets this Black Panther suit, which is just amazing. I've been trying to order one online for a while, and they're out of stock. But uh, um, his suit is modified by a sister so that when he's hit by an enemy, what happens? The suit starts to turn purple. And what it does is it, the energy that was directed against him, the suit captures and stores so that he can redirect back at them. It's pretty amazing. Um, just in case the internet will tell you this technology doesn't actually exist. Uh, I, I was Googling it this week. Um, all, Paul is saying that God's love encompasses each of his children in such a way that all the energy that's intended for our harm is taken in and it is redirected and changed into a way that's making glory and good for us that will overwhelm all the loss. It's hard for us to even imagine. Now, the difficulty is if you watch a Black Panther movie and you see how he functions with that suit on, it looks a lot different than our lives, doesn't it? Because he's winning victory after victory from that suit. And our lives here on earth often don't look like that. It's just absorbing blow after blow and hardship after hardship. But what Paul wants us to see is not one tear is being missed. Not one loss is being overlooked. Not one uh, amount of energy against you is being discarded. It is all being subsumed into this plan. And this story of subversion, it isn't new, is it? It's a story that God foretold from the beginning that there would be a serpent who would think he's one because he struck the son's heel. But the striking of the heel, even though it brings about his death, brings about what? The crushing of the serpent's head. Subversion is the story that God is writing and we will one day see revealed in a way that is hard for us to even fathom. And what Paul is saying here is that this is not just the way God worked in the life of Jesus, who was the Lamb of God to take away our sin, but this is also what God is doing in the lives of all of his sheep because of his love. We don't see how this will all work out. The things around us and the lives we live feel very much like we're losing at every turn many times. But they seem this way not because God is somehow cruelly keeping us in the dark or because he doesn't care or love us. But the bigger story of the glory that he is working in subverting all of this is really too big for us to comprehend. And that's why it feels this way. Until we really see the fullness of the ending, there's no way to fully fathom how all these pieces fit and how we can hold together a love that's that strong with the suffering that we endure until we see the overwhelming weight of glory that is laid up for us in heaven. You see, in many ways, the term subversive doesn't even capture God's love because subversive is working from below. But you know what scripture tells us? It's God's love that's working from above that came all the way down so that everything that we face would be worked together for this perfect purpose of his glory that he has forever bound to our good because he loves us that much. Brothers and sisters, your suffering is not a sign that God's love has somehow lost 
it's actually a reminder of how big the overwhelming glory and goodness is to come. As hard as that is for us to fathom. Karen Jobes is a professor at Wheaton College, and um, she's a brilliant theologian. She's written helpful commentaries. I love her First Peter commentary. She told of the final days of her late mother, where she was with her mom as her mom was lying there on her deathbed. And her mom looked up at her and asked, Karen, what if it's not true? And she was speaking of the promise of salvation in Christ. What if it's not true? And Karen, this Christian and amazing theologian, had to says she had to quickly flick through her mental theological filing system. You know, what answer is best to reply in this situation? And she looked at her mom and she said, Mom, Jesus said he loves you and he wouldn't lie. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet it's actually so profound. The love of Jesus is actually what we cling to in the difficulties of this life and what we cling to in the face of death. Because Paul has shown us that for Jesus to be able to say that and for the cross to be able to demonstrate that, what that says about the triune love of God and what that says about everything that we face in this life, it frames it all up. If you don't know that love today, Jesus' promise to you is this. If you trust him, if you trust him to forgive your sins and give you eternal life, then everything that we've been talking about today, it's all yours. By simply trusting in Christ, God is forever for you and God forever loves you and life in his love and glory is yours, not because of anything you've done, but in spite of it simply by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. That is his promise today. And then for those of us who are trusting in Christ, brothers and sisters, Paul knows that the night is dark, the wait is long, the groaning is real, and the groaning is intense. But what strengthens us in the waiting is knowing that we are not forsaken, God is for us, and our hope is in the inseparable, subversive love of God that truly endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess there is much we don't know, but we thank you for how clear you have revealed your love for us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith to believe it, to endure in the midst of trial, to help those who are struggling. And we thank you for the sure and certain promise that we will know the fullness of your love one day when our Lord Jesus returns. Keep us faithful until that day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.